This morning we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2 and verses 8 through 14. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, as we see what happened after Christ was born. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, in a sermon that I've titled, Good Tidings of Great Joy. Good Tidings of Great Joy. Luke chapter 2, and in a moment we'll look at our passage, verses 8 through 14 here in Luke chapter 2. Since the beginning of time, man has been looking for a hero. Man has been looking for someone to deliver him from his greatest problem. Someone who mankind can proudly hail as a great leader to follow. It wasn't any different at the time of Jesus' birth. Jesus entered the world at a time when the Jews were under Roman occupation. They were looking for someone to rally behind, someone who they could get behind, who could free them from the authority that Rome had over them. They were looking for physical deliverance, but Jesus came to offer them spiritual deliverance. In a small, obscure little town of Bethlehem, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, was born. The one who would bring hope to every person on earth. The one who would bring light to everyone that had been living in darkness. The one who would bring salvation from sin. Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem and nearly no one knew about him. The greatest hero, the greatest deliverer, the savior of the world, the greatest that anyone would ever know. And no one was even expecting him. No one was there to welcome him when he was born. No one was there to celebrate his birth. In all of Bethlehem, no one had any room to accommodate him. No one in all of Bethlehem knew what was happening right in their backyard. Bethlehem was about to be put on the map for everyone everywhere to know about, and yet its residents had no clue what was happening right in their hometown. A few miles away in Jerusalem, no one knew either. None of the Roman officials knew either what was happening in Bethlehem. For anyone who was close enough to hear baby Jesus cry, they suspected it was any ordinary baby. Jesus' birth was so far from the center stage, so far from being in the spotlight, no earthly authority was even remotely aware to offer any sort of public announcement. Though all the earth remained in silence that night, like any other ordinary night, when they should have rejoiced, heaven would break the silence. Just outside this obscure little town of Bethlehem, the Bible tells us where shepherds watched their flocks by night. Angels appeared praising God and delivering good tidings of great joy to the unlikeliest of audience. The news of God's redemptive plan for man was first delivered to the shepherds The glorious night Jesus was born. Your Bibles are open to Luke chapter 2. Follow along as I begin reading at verse number 8. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. 
you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. I want you to notice, first of all, the good news proclaimed. The good news proclaimed. Everything about this night was business as usual for these shepherds. There was no lead up to this angelic encounter. There was no advanced notice of this arrival. They weren't told earlier on that day, guys, when you go out into the fields by night and you're watching over the sheep doing nothing like any other ordinary night, something extravagant is going to happen. Avert your eyes to the skies in the east and there will be an angelic encounter, one like you've never seen before. Nothing like this. Nothing of the sort. Everything was just business as usual. The silence and the darkness of that night was just as it was any other night until it was broken with the appearance of the angel and the glory of the Lord shining round about them. The good news, though, was not that the shepherds would see an angel or even a whole heavenly host of angels. The good news was that the Savior had been born unto them. The angels could not wait to deliver this news. They could not wait to praise God for his goodness and his grace that was being extended to the race of men. I know we often talk about how surprising it is that God would first make this wonderful news known to the shepherds, considering they were essentially outcasts in society, but God was leaving it up to them to spread the news of Christ's birth as well. If we had such life-changing, earth-changing news to proclaim to everyone, we probably would have gone about this a little bit differently. If God gave us the opportunity to spread this news and said, okay, you choose who to share it with first, I doubt many of us would decide that it would be the shepherds or it would be the the lowest on the social ladder that we're going to share this news with first. We'd probably try to get in contact with every news outlet and every media station. How can we get in front of the largest group of people the fastest? And so we'd want to get ourselves in front of a camera. We'd want to get ourselves in front of the the Channel 6 News or whatever it is to make sure that this is going to be broadcasted to as many people as fast as possible. When I have something really exciting to tell Ruthie, I don't tell Elijah first and have him go and tell Ruthie for me. And that's nothing against Elijah. But he'd probably get distracted by something shiny that he sees on the way to tell Ruthie. And the news would never make it to her. But that's a three-year-old. You don't blame a three-year-old for that. The shepherds were not typically known to be the most reliable. In fact, they were known for telling tall tales. History tells us this. And think about it. They had nothing Nothing to do as they're out in the middle of the night keeping watch over their flock by night. They have to stay awake. They have to sometimes talk to the sheep. And in case you're wondering, sheep don't talk back. But they were known for telling tall tales. And if we had our pick, we probably would have selected the most educated, the most trusted, the most intellectual people to spread the news of Christ's birth to first. People that we could count on to to deliver this message with clarity and with effectiveness. But God's plan was to deliver this most glorious news to the shepherds first. As unlikely as a group of people, as they may seem to us, consider what was prophesied of the Messiah. Back in Isaiah 61, verse number 1. 
The prophet Isaiah writes, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath set me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. This verse literally tells us that God's word, the message of hope, the message of salvation, is going to those that you would have least expected to. Good tidings to the meek. He said to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound. These aren't necessarily the, the, the people that we would think to go and tell first. And it says here, this is who God has anointed him to go and preach good tidings to first. Think about what Jesus did throughout his public ministry. While he did frequent the temple and synagogues as well, speaking to those who were very well educated, speaking to those who were well respected, he spent the majority of his time talking and spending time and fellowshipping with those who were poor and lowly, people like the shepherds that we read about here in Luke chapter 2. Christ had a very special place in his heart for those who were looked down upon, for those who seemed to be ignored, for those who were otherwise rejected by everyone else in society. Mary even acknowledged this before Jesus was even born as she praised him. Back in Luke chapter 1 and verse number 52, and in her song of praise, as she's recognizing that she's really a nobody, that God has chosen to be the one to bring forth his only begotten son. And notice what she says in Luke 1 and verse 52. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. Exalted them of low degree. Now she's, she talks about herself first, but then she goes on to talk about who everyone else God is reaching. Putting down the mighty from their seats and exalting them of low degree. God was honoring the humble. We read about God doing this in the people he chose to proclaim the gospel to. Um, and even those who he, he, he set aside to proclaim the gospel themselves. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 26 and 29, the Bible says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. What these verses are showing us is that the people that God chooses to use are not necessarily the people that we would think should be used. People, basically, he says, that are not qualified. People that are not skilled. People that are not regarded by the world as notable and significant in any sort of way. And, and specifically, we're talking about here the proclamation, the preaching of the gospel. The, the people that you would least expect to be doing this, God says, are exactly the ones that he's chosen to do this. Whenever I, I read this verse, and it's nothing against him at all, but... I always remember this one pastor that we served under in this church, little tiny country church that we were uh, attending in Florida when Ruthie and I were first married, Graceway Baptist Church. 
a very country church, country pastor. I think maybe he graduated high school. He didn't go to college, and he wasn't well-polished. He wasn't well-groomed. He wasn't, I mean, he, lo- he looked clean and cut, but as far as uh, education is concerned, he wasn't the most educated person that you, could, that you could have. And yet, this guy could preach your socks off. I, I could sit under his preaching every single day, um, he is light years ahead of, of where I am. And I would just listen to him preach, and I'm thinking, how? How? I got to know him more, and I'm thinking, how? God, how can you use someone like him? And it, again, no offense to the man, no offense to even God. But in my logical way, I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, he doesn't fit the bill. And yet when he gets behind the pulpit and opens up God's word, whoo, wow, blows your mind how well he's able to open up scripture and make it come alive. And this is what these verses are saying, that God doesn't fit into a specific mold as to how he's going to do things. He doesn't need the most educated. He doesn't need the most skilled. He doesn't need the most intellectual to do his purposes, to accomplish his will. In fact, he does probably greater work with those who are ill-equipped and less skilled. And that's why when we look at the shepherds, in, in our minds we're thinking, Lord, you know, did you miss the palace? Because you know, it, it's probably several miles more inward than where you are outside of Bethlehem. But there's certainly more noble people that you could have come to. And no, this is exactly where he intended to come. These are exactly the people that he intended to deliver this message to first. And what a, what a comfort it is that as we look at this and even translate to what's happening today, that God hasn't looked past us and said, no, you're not worthy to receive this. It is for every single person. God specifically uses means and individuals who we would never consider using so that he might get all the glory. It's not that being a shepherd wasn't a legitimate occupation or profession. As we see throughout Scripture, some of the most famous individuals in the Bible were shepherds. Men like Abraham, Moses, even David were shepherds for some time. It wasn't necessarily a shameful profession, just a lowly one. A lowly one that involved a lot of menial work. And much of the work that shepherds did was looked down on by others. Many looked at the work of the shepherds as if it was something that was beneath them. I I could never do that. That's the job of a shepherd. Kind of the idea. Shepherds were the lowest people on the Jewish social ladder. And because their job required them caring for sheep seven days a week. Now, this busy work schedule meant that they could not uphold all the Sabbath day laws that were dictated by the law. Therefore, in many ways, the shepherds were looked upon as outcasts in the eyes of others. Shepherds seemed to to live according to their own rules and in their own little world, as if nothing else applied to them. These are the people that God used to announce the birth of his son to the entire world. God was showing his love for everyone by delivering the news to them first and having them be the means by which others would then hear about the birth of the Savior. Later on in his earthly ministry, Jesus further demonstrated this love and and this acceptance of the humble when he called himself the good shepherd. Do you ever think about that? Again, 
This isn't a, a sought-after position. No one was growing up saying, I can't wait so that I can grow up and be a shepherd. It had to get done. Someone had to do this job. But it was almost like the equivalent of being a janitor. No one aspires as a kid to be a janitor. Most no one. But this is the idea here. And then Jesus, in John chapter 10, says that he is the good shepherd. Now we often look at that as if he's you know, elevating himself and, and choosing this really lofty and noble position. But in reality, what is he saying? He's giving himself the most humble position ever. I am the good shepherd, he says. He was identifying with, with people like we see here in Luke chapter 2, with, with the outcasts of society, with those who were the lowest on the social ladder in, in Jerusalem, in all of Judea. He was telling them that he is one of the lowest among them. He was humbling himself in the most, in, in the most humble means as possible. He was the good shepherd. God was extending his gift of grace to undeserving sinners. And the lower the sinner, the greater his grace appeared and the more his glory shined. Now looking back here at Luke chapter 2 and verse number 9, we see that the glory of God, it says, shined round about the, the shepherds there that night. It says, And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. At one point or another, every one of us have experienced where we've been in a dark room, all the lights are off, you can't see so much as even your hand in front of your face, and then someone flips the switch and it goes from pitch black to bright as day. We've all been there, we've all experienced how you have to turn your eyes away from the light, give your, uh, give your eyes a moment to adjust before you can open them again and feel like your corneas aren't burned. Our eyes had adjusted to the darkness. They, they get adjusted after a certain while when you're in darkness, and then the sudden light is too much for us to bear at the moment. We've all experienced where it takes us a couple moments to, to get acclimated to now the light again. What the shepherds experienced this night was so much different. I don't think we can fully grasp what happened here without fully understanding what the glory of the Lord really is. It says again, And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. This was not just turning on all the lights in a dark room. The glory of the Lord speaks of the presence of God revealed in light. God does not have a physical body. God the Father exists as a spirit. But when he reveals himself to man, he does so with this incomprehensible manifestation of pure and undefiled bright light. The glory of the Lord is so magnificent that if he fully revealed it to any individual, that individual would be incinerated on the spot. You would not be able to live. Moses wanted to see the full glory of God. But listen to what God told him in Exodus chapter 33 and verses 20 to 23. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. 
And I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Now this is God describing that his glory is too magnificent, too brilliant for any individual to see in its fullness without dying. And later on, when Moses and the people finished building the tabernacle, we're told of God's glory coming upon the tabernacle, the structure. In Exodus chapter 40 and verses 34 and 35, it says, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And notice this. It says, while the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, it says, and Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. While the glory of the Lord was inside that tabernacle, no one could come in. And that's not just because God was sanctifying it, but because anyone that did would have died instantly. God was blessing Moses. God was blessing the entire nation of Israel for their obedience in constructing this tabernacle. And he was blessing them by filling this tabernacle with his glory. His glory was a physical manifestation of his presence. Centuries later, when Solomon would build the first temple, the tabernacle was a more temporary structure, like a giant tent. The, t- the temple was a physical structure. And when Solomon built the first temple, God provided another physical manifestation of his presence. When God was blessing that temple in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verses 10 and 11, the Bible says, And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place, so they leave, everyone leaves, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Everyone has to leave, and then the glory of the Lord comes in. Otherwise, everyone would have died instantly. This was a, a beautiful picture in 1 Kings chapter 8 of God's presence with the people. Even though not too long after that, the people would turn away from God. But listen to what we read, though. In Ezekiel chapter 10, as the people's heart turns from God, notice what happens. After the glory of the Lord had come and filled the house, notice what happens in Ezekiel chapter 10 and verses 18 and 19. It says, Then the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubims, and the cherubims lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, The wheels also were beside them, and everyone stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. It was a sad moment for the prophet Ezekiel to witness the glory of the Lord depart, leave the house of the Lord. But the glory of the Lord would return. The glory of the Lord would return the night that Christ was born. And his birth announced by the angels to the shepherds. Luke 2 verse 9. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. The glory of the Lord returned the night that Jesus Christ was born. The significance of the glory of the Lord appearing, shining round about the shepherds, was that God's presence had once again returned to earth. Only this time, 
It wasn't going to be in a cloud or in a tabernacle, but in the person of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. How awesome. The angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. How these shepherds survived, I do not know. But God allowed them to see a glimpse of his glory. Not the fullness of it, but a glimpse of it. And it was brighter, more magnificent, more brilliant than anything and any light that any human had ever seen. God's glory had returned. And then notice the reaction of the shepherds at the end of verse number 9. It says, The angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Now this is honestly the reaction that we would have expected. This was the brightest, most pure, most undefiled, magnificent light they had ever beheld, added to this fact that it was in the middle of the night. So their eyes had already adjusted to the night. And all of a sudden, in a flash of a moment, all of that night turns into the brightest of day, and even brighter than that. And they're terrified. When the prophet Isaiah saw the vision of the Lord in the temple, he was so terrified that he expected to die at that moment. And he declared this. He said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Isaiah chapter 6. That undone literally means I'm dead. I am falling apart at the seams. My skin is no longer containing anything. I literally crumble into absolute nothingness. That is the idea of what he was saying there. He's seeing this wonderful, incredible vision of God in the temple. And he says, woe is me. I am not worthy of this. I am worthy of one thing, and that is to be utterly incinerated in the presence of God. I am undone, he said. The prophet Ezekiel had a very similar experience and a similar response. In Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse number 28, it said, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face. The idea is he just crumbles before this vision of the glory of God. He realizes he's not worthy to be seeing all of this. And what he is deserving is to just fall on the ground as if he's dead. When Peter, James, and John in the New Testament saw the glory of Christ upon the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, they all, the Bible says, fell on their faces in fear. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17, it records for us what happened when the Apostle John saw a vision of the glory of the ascended Lord. And he said this, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. These were the reactions of some of the great men of the faith when they witnessed the glory of the Lord or a vision of the glory of the Lord. And if they reacted this way, how well should we expect people to react when encountering the same? These shepherds were ordinary men without any sort of significance, without any interesting life experiences, and they certainly didn't expect anything to be different on this specific night. This was their routine every night. But the fact that things were different on this night tells of the magnitude of what God was doing. This wasn't just any baby that was born in Bethlehem. God the Father was announcing to the entire world that his presence was once again joining humanity, and it started by the glory of the Lord appearing again. But this time it would be through flesh and blood. We've looked at the proclamation of the good news, the good news proclaimed. But secondly, notice how widespread this good news was. Look at verses 10 and 11. 
And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. It wasn't just good tidings of great joy to the shepherds, but to all people, the angel says. That night, God was fulfilling prophecies and covenants that he had made many, many years before. When the angel declared that this was good news to all people, he was declaring that God's redemptive plan was spread wide enough that no one anywhere would ever be excluded. Eight days following this wonderful event when Jesus was born, while Joseph and Mary visited the temple with baby Jesus, a man by the name of Simeon met them, takes baby Jesus up in his arms, and spoke these prophetic words in Luke chapter 2 and verses 30 to 32. He said, For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. The entire world would be blessed by Jesus Christ, for he came to be the Savior of everyone who believes on him. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this in Isaiah 60 and verses 1 through 3. He said, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. God's redemptive plan would be spread throughout the entire world. As widespread as this good news is, there's also an individual aspect to it as well. Look again at what it says in verse number 11 here in Luke chapter 2. For unto you is born this day. Unto you, the angel said. And it wasn't just that a Savior had been born that was going to put a blanket over everyone and say, you're all completely forgiven, you're all going to be saved, you're all going to be in heaven one day. But a personal Savior had been born. Unto you is born this day. The gospel is good news for the humble. It is good news for the lowly, for the uneducated, for the skilled, unskilled, for the despised, for the rejected, for the worst of sinners, for everyone. For everyone that comes to faith in him. And notice third, the good news identified. Who is the good news? Verse number 11 says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Any kind of significant news will involve people in some way. But those who are most crucial, uh, uh, but those who are most crucial to the news will vary. Sometimes the one who is delivering the news is the most important. Other times it is the one that's receiving the news. And in some occasions, it is the author of the news that is the most important. The angel here was sent by God to deliver this news to the shepherds on this glorious night. But the most important person was not the angel, was not even the shepherds that were spoken to, but Jesus Christ who was spoken of. And notice what the angel refers to as, as they say about who this Savior is. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, he says, which is Christ the Lord. Now this is quite an exalted title to give a baby who is newly born especially one born in such a humble estate. 
He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born with a crown upon his head. He wasn't born with anything significant to identify him as special. We talked about this last night. He was born in a manger. He was he laid in a manger, born in a stable, probably among animals. In every aspect of Christ's birth, as he was wrapped in swaddling clothes, none of it, none of it at all, pointed to him being something special, something significant. Everything pointed to him being ordinary, being just any other baby that is born. He was born in the most humble estate. The name Christ, though, as the angel says, he is Christ the Lord. Christ literally means anointed one. It means anointed one. Jesus is called Christ, the anointed one, because he is king. God anointed him as king. He is the eternal king of kings who will sit on the throne of David forever. God also anointed Jesus as our great high priest. In 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now the word priest doesn't actually appear there, but that is the priestly duty to mediate between God and man, and Jesus Christ would be that mediator. He's our mediator, he's our high priest, he's the one who intercedes on our behalf. And Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11 and 15 also tells of this truth. It says, But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Jesus Christ is our high priest. He is our king. But God also anointed him to be our prophet as well. Now prophets were God's spokesmen. They were the ones that God would speak to on behalf of the people. And then the prophet would go and share what news God had to the people. Jesus is our prophet as well. In Hebrews chapter 1, in verses 1 and 2, it tells us that Jesus would be the greatest spokesman for God ever. It says, God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Jesus Christ was appointed and anointed as king of kings, as the high priest who intercedes and is our mediator, and as our prophet, the one who continues to speak to us through himself. All the angel told the shepherd, told the shepherds there that night, was that this Jesus is Christ the Lord. But he was letting the shepherds know that this Christ, the anointed one, was to be the greatest king, the greatest priest, the greatest prophet mankind would ever know. Not only is Jesus the anointed one, but he goes on to say, which is Christ, the anointed one, the Lord. It is incredible enough that the angel called Jesus Christ. But now he's saying that Jesus is God. And it wasn't just that this baby born in Bethlehem was going to be some great humanitarian that would make an incredible impact over the course of human history. We needed Jesus to be so much more than just a good person who lived here on earth, who did some great work and taught some profound truth. We needed more than that. We needed God to enter the realm of humanity, to offer himself as the perfect substitute for the sinful men. 
This is why these words from the angel are so, so significant, where he says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Jesus being God is the absolute foundation for the Christian faith. We have nothing, nothing at all without Jesus being God. We have everything, though, with him as God. In Romans 10, verse 9, it tells us, it says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You cannot be saved without first believing that Jesus Christ is God. It does you no good to place your faith in a person who did some good things and taught some profound truth and made a significant impact on human history. If your faith is resting not solely in God, your faith is in vain. Jesus needs to be God in order for any part of the Bible to be true and in order for anyone to have any sort of hope of salvation. We need a perfect, we need a sinless, we need an all-sufficient God to die in our place and satisfy God's wrath for sin. The angel was communicating all of this to the shepherds when he said, which is Christ the Lord, because he is telling them that he is indeed the Son of God. I'm sure there was so much excitement in the angel as he delivered this message to the shepherds there that night, because this wasn't any new information for the angel. He knew about Jesus. He knew who he is. He knew everything there is to know about Jesus, just about that he was coming to earth and he knew what he was coming to earth to do. The angel knew how Jesus' birth would go on to impact and affect mankind from this point forward. So I'm sure there was so much excitement, so much enthusiasm as he delivered this message because he knew that the world of man would get to experience God's presence in a way that he was used to experiencing God's presence for many years. God was physically joining the world of men and this world would never be the same after that glorious night. And notice fourth, the purpose of the good news. Verses 13 and 14, the purpose of the good news. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And these two verses Take the joy, take the excitement, the enthusiasm in the previous verses, and it raises it even higher. These verses offer us a glimpse into the greatest and most appropriate manner to ever respond to the truth of God. Angels who knew God, who knew Christ, who had been most likely in the presence of Christ and God in heaven, are seen worshiping and glorifying God in the most incredible way. All of creation was created to give glory to God. And these angels are seen doing that the best way they can. We may not know how many angels made up this heavenly host, but the word multitude there in the Greek is the word that is used to describe 10,000. And regardless of how many angels were present there that night, and 10,000 is just an astronomical number, if that's, if that's just the number, but probably even more than that. It is awesome to think about how they were all brightly shining as the glory of the Lord shone round about the shepherds and as these angels are all joined in unison, praising and glorifying God. And the reason they praised God was because Jesus, the Savior of the world, was born. It's amazing how this all turned out as you consider that this news 
had even nothing to do with the angels. And yet they are seen offering God their highest and most sincere praise. The angels understood that God's redemptive plan that was being ushered in through this little baby that had been born in Bethlehem was strictly for mankind. And with joy, the angels celebrated as Jesus set aside his heavenly glory and came to earth in humility for undeserving sinners. The angels understood that Jesus Christ would be going to the cross, that he would suffer God's full wrath for every single sinner. And here they are rejoicing and glorifying God in the highest. This glorious truth was summed up in a few words in verse number 14. It says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. As profound as this truth is, so many over the years have misunderstood and even um, underappreciated what these angels are saying. On earth, peace. This didn't mean that the world is finally going to see peace that it's never seen before. But it meant that man would finally have the opportunity to be at peace with God. Salvation would only be possible through Jesus Christ and everything that he came and accomplished. Mankind was going to remain enemies with God apart from the atoning work of Jesus Christ. But through Christ, we have the promise of being at peace with God. On earth, peace. And then it goes on to say, goodwill toward men. And this speaks of God's favoring that he was showing men. God was not sending his only begotten son to earth because of the collective works of man were so good that God said, you know what? They deserve some good favor shown their way. God saw humanity in great need. He saw humanity. He saw mankind with no means to ever unburden himself from the bondage of sin. And so God proceeded to demonstrate the greatest act of love this world has ever seen and will ever see. And God sent his only begotten son to offer himself up as the sacrifice for every single sinner. God knew that without some divine intervention, man would forever be separated from him. And so God intervened. He was not prompted to do so because the men from earth were calling out for God to do something to help them. He wasn't coerced into sending Jesus to earth on our behalf, but out of his great love for us and only his great love for us, God sent forth his son, as Galatians 4.4 says, made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that, he might, that we might receive the adoption of sons. If God gave us everything that we deserved, that night would have forever remained a silent night. Joseph and Mary would have never heard from an angel before that. They would have never been in Bethlehem that night. The shepherds would have gone about their business on this quiet night of keeping watch over their flocks, passing the time the same way they did every single night. There would have been no exciting news for them to go and seek out. There would have been nothing noteworthy for them to spread abroad. But God didn't give us what we deserved. Rather, God showed goodwill toward men and brought good tidings of great joy to all people as he gave us the greatest gift that no one deserves. That first Christmas was so much greater than all the depictions that we've seen in books and in movies and in, in, in TV shows. The message of the angels is a 2,000-year-old message that never gets old. God is still in the salvation business today. And if you believe on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it is indeed good tidings of great joy for you. There is no lasting peace. There is no everlasting joy apart from Jesus Christ. He is the one the angels were sent to proclaim, and he is the one that we celebrate today and every day that there is life and breath within us. 
He alone brings everlasting life. He alone is worthy of all of our praise. It doesn't matter if you're hearing the story for the first time or for the millionth time. The message of Jesus Christ is a life-changing message to all who believe on him. And if you know Jesus personally, rejoice in all that he has done for you. Rejoice in who he is personally. If you don't know him as your Lord, believe on him today. Let this be the day that you forever settle the question as to where you're going to spend your eternity. Run to Jesus and accept him for everything that he has done for you. Admit that you're a sinner in need of salvation. Acknowledge that you will never be able to do enough on your own to earn salvation for yourself. Accept that Jesus has done everything for you to be saved and to be eternally saved. And believe on him with your heart. And the Bible says the moment you do that, you shall indeed be saved. It may be an old message. But it's just as powerful today as it was when God first proclaimed it. The message of good tidings of great joy was not just for the shepherds there that night, but for every single person everywhere. The message of Christ only becomes good tidings of great joy, though, for those who believe on Jesus Christ. May this and every Christmas here on forth be merry, because we receive these good tidings of great joy that a Savior has been born to us who is Christ the Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you just doesn't seem to be enough. Lord, that silent night had every reason to remain silent. And every night from there on forth, Lord, as we lived out our days here on this earth, and received what the wages of our sin rightly deserve. Lord, we deserved nothing but silence from heaven. But Lord, I'm just so thankful that in your great love, and only your great love, you looked down upon a world and a race of men living in utter darkness. And you thought it necessary to intervene. You thought it necessary, Lord, to send your glory back to earth again. To show mankind that you were once again physically a part of them. And I'm so glad, Lord, that you did it through your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. For without him, Lord, we have no hope. We have no joy. We have no promise of heaven no reason to rejoice and celebrate any moment but with him Lord as we've come to faith in Jesus Christ and who he is and all that he's done for us the fact that he has done everything for us to have salvation wherein all that we have to do is believe on him as our everything our salvation, our redeemer and we too shall be saved eternally I'm thankful that he has made it so simple and that everything has been done through his finished work. Lord, may we rejoice together. May we rejoice and do as the shepherds did. Go and spread abroad the wonderful news that was made known unto them, that there is a Savior which is born unto us, who is Christ the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.